0: Hello, everyone. Good morning and happy Sabbath. Glad you could join us for our Saturday morning live stream. Uh, I hope that you're doing well. And uh, yeah, it's nice to have so many days in a row where we have uh, experienced triple donut days. And uh, it's nice that family can now finally come and visit, at least those that live in Australia. Um, I think I was talking to a uh, David this week, and he was saying that Sue now is back in Melbourne and so Sue, we want to welcome you back uh, back to victoria we're glad that you're back there's a part of us that wondered if uh, if you guys would end up staying in w a with all the freedoms that you guys are enjoying there, but uh, we're glad that you could we're, we're glad that you're back here so today we are concluding um, our series entitled uh, Tale of Three Kings and um, today we're going to be um, finishing with part four, uh, which is entitled The Unfairness of Mercy. The Unfairness of Mercy. And let me just see if I have screen priority here. Great. So we're gonna start off by talking about, uh, King Saul. And as we've discussed King Saul, um, early on in this series, uh, King Saul is known as the first king of Israel. And at face value, Saul doesn't do anything terrible, but at the same time, he doesn't genuinely care for God either. And so um, in the story of Saul, the mercy of God isn't apparent, even though you can see the goodness of God permeating the kingdom of Israel during the reign of Saul. Saul goes and battles the enemies. He wins many battles. He wins accolades. He wins loyalty. And even though he battles the outside enemies of Israel, um, during his reign, he experiences a a fair amount of peace and unity within his kingdom. Then we have David who is known as the greatest king of Israel. And in contrast to Saul, David makes terrible mistakes, but at the same time, he has, um, he has uh, he has a genuine love for God, and I just realized I skipped a major part of, of Saul. so let me just do a quick re- rewind here. The downfall of Saul was that even though he didn 't have a genuine relationship with God and he didn 't make terrible mistakes um, because he doesn 't have that relationship with god he, he his mistakes tend to consume him, and it leads down to this negative um, uh, negative sp- there 's this negative spiral effect and um, and uh, his greatest fears are realized at the end of his life. So back to David. David is known as the greatest king of Israel. He makes terrible mistakes, but he has a genuine love for God. And David has habits that are quite destructive to himself, his family, and his kingdom. And David arguably experiences the greatest blessings from God out of all the kings of Israel, but he also encounters uh, incredible hardship as well. So, last week we talked about Ahab, and Ahab is known as the worst king of Israel. He's a terrible person according to scripture, he made terrible mistakes, yet in his story there are moments where we see him responding to God, and God just shows incredible mercy to Ahab, and in his story we learn that uh, even though we are at our worst, we can experience God's best. And so today we're going to conclude uh, with one more story from the life of Ahab. Um, the late Christopher Hitchens would say, "The mercy of God is immoral." The mercy of God is immoral. And through this series, we've been exploring what the mercy of God means and how God interacts with our mistakes. And we've been looking at different examples of mistakes that um, these different kings made throughout Scripture. When Christopher Hitchens says that the mercy of God is immoral, <coughs> what he's really asking is: How is it fair to not take responsibility for one's actions? Um, how is it fair? How is it righteous for God to step in and say, "I will die on the behalf of sinners. I will step in and I will pay the punishment that you deserve"? There was a woman this week who was arrested for arson, and. Is it fair if I take, if we take this, uh, principle of God's forgiveness, is it fair and responsible for this woman who was, is, who is arrested for arson and who, um, you know, murdered three people? Is it right, um, for someone else to step into her place and go to prison for her? Is it right? Is it responsible for this woman to go scot free? And Hitchens would ask the question, how can you define righteousness? With this idea of forgiveness, and therefore it is immoral. I think of the life of David, and David's life teaches us that God's mercy doesn't take away the consequences of our actions. Uh, so if God's mercy doesn't take away the consequences of our actions, the question is, well then what does the mercy of God actually do? We're going to look at First Kings chapter 21. And we're going to be going through this story, and as I've got uh, most of the story here on the text, I'm just going to narrate it for you. Um, And so I'm just going to invite you to read along the text as as I narrate. So in 1 Kings chapter 21 we find Ahab negotiating a purchase of a vineyard from Naboth the Jezreelite. And Ahab here wants Naboth's vineyard because it's next to his palace, uh, but Naboth is not interested in selling his land. Um if you look at verse 3, we can say we can see that Naboth has this reluctance to sell his land and it's for a spiritual reason. Notice he says in verse 3, um God for God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And there's a fair amount of history that goes, uh, along with, uh, the Israelites and, uh, the possession of their land. And if you look at the story of Numbers in the Old Testament, you'll see that God treats land as this, uh, as a holy thing. Um, so going to Numbers chapter 25, uh, 26, excuse me, verses 52 to 56. As you read through that, you see that when Israel entered the land of Canaan, the land is split up among the different tribes by size. In other words, the larger tribes receive large plots of land, the smaller tribes receive smaller plots of land. And so the inheritance that the Israelites received was a fulfillment of the promise of God, and it was considered therefore holy. Now, Because the land is considered holy, there are all sorts of rules and regulations that kind of surround the ownership of land. And just to kind of summarize here, um, the Israelites were supposed to hold on to their property um, forever. And uh, they were supposed to pass on their inheritance from generation to generation. And under a general rule of thumb, they weren't supposed to ever sell their land. Now, of course, there would be the off chance that somebody would face financial hardship. And so the rules that surrounded the selling of land was that someone was allowed to sell their land to get out of financial debt or out out of financial hardship. But at a set time, every 50 years, uh, the Israelites were actually supposed to return their land to the original owner or to the original family. And uh, that 50-year period is called the year of jubilee. And uh, God just has this interesting model of dealing with wealth inequality um, in the land of, uh, in the nation of Israel. So, as you, uh, if you're interested in learning more about the rules that surround um, the, the the ownership of land, you can read uh, Numbers chapter 26, 27, and 36 as well. Also, if you look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verses 17, you notice here that the last commandment highlights property. God commands his people not to covet each other's land. Well, in this story, when Ahab comes to uh, uh, Naboth, he wants his vineyard, and so he tries to negotiate with, with Naboth, but Naboth sees the possession of his land as this holy uh, responsibility, and so he's he he rejects Ahab's request. Well, if we continue on to... Verses four to seven in first Kings chapter 21. We see here that Ahab goes to his palace and he sulks. He lays in his bed. He refuses to eat. And, and poor guy, right? The vineyard is right next to his palace. And so he can't even go out on the porch because seeing the vineyard would constantly remind him of what he doesn't have. And when his wife Jezebel finds out why her husband is in his state of woe, she springs into action, and she promises to acquire Naboth's vineyard for Ahab. You know, I thought about calling this sermon Jezebel the Caring Wife. I mean, she dotes on her husband, she tries to cheer him up. What a nice wife, right? But uh, it didn't quite fit the direction of the sermon. Anyway, if we continue on, verses 8 to 10. Jezebel forges a letter on the behalf of Ahab instructing the elders of Naboth City to proclaim a fast and she tells the elders to place Naboth in a distinguished visible place among the people who are fasting and in the midst of the time when the people are prioritizing God in his will um, two false witnesses are to become deeply convicted and place a charge on Naboth for cursing God and the king and this ends up Resulting in the stoning of Naboth, and if you look at uh, verse ten, it describes uh, the two uh, false witnesses as two scoundrels um, who are opposite of uh, who 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 sit opposite of Naboth, and it's kind of interesting if these if these two false witnesses are called scoundrels, then what would you know? (laughs) It's interesting that they called uh, the the author calls the witnesses scoundrels, but then kind of leaves Jezebel at the name Jezebel. So what happens in the story is that Naboth ends up being stoned. And it's at this time that God instructs Elijah the prophet to um, pronounce judgment on Ahab and Jezebel. And so Elijah travels to the city. He um, confronts King Ahab, and he says, God knows exactly what you have done. And it's interesting when you look at their interaction, Ahab sees Elijah and he says, so you have found me, my enemy. And he hasn't even started talking to Elijah, but he knows bad news is coming. Notice the judgment that's pronounced. Uh, verse 21, God says, I'm coming, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off Ahab. Every last male in Israel, slave or free. Um, and that, that phrase, slave or free, can also be translated rulers. Um, verse 23, and also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and birds will feed on those who die in the country. Now, those are very, very strong words. God wants to communicate very clearly to Ahab, I see exactly what you've done, I see the intent, I see the wickedness, and you are going to be judged accordingly. Now, thinking back to the story of Saul, when God judges Saul, Saul never repents. He just kind of plays the blame game and moves on. And because Saul takes this approach, um, His mistakes tend to pile up. In contrast, in the life of or in the story of David, God pronounces judgment on David and David draws closer to God. He recognizes his fault and he repents. And as a result, God then restores David. Uh, He restores the kingdom to David, uh, even though David um, experiences a lot of consequences from his mistakes. But with Ahab, Ahab fits into a third category He is evil. He does great wrong. But if you look at this next verse in verse 28, uh, 27 and 28, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. So Ahab hears this judge, uh, Ahab hears this judgment and as a result, he mourns. And if we read in verses 28 and 29, God shows mercy to Ahab. But when you look at the mercy that God shows, it's partial mercy. Uh, if you look at verse 29, notice uh, God God talks to Elijah and says, Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Uh, because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it to the Uh, bring it to his house in the days of his son so in other words ahab you're not going to suffer the consequences but your children will and i'm not sure if that would give him cause to kind of think "Whew, dodged a bullet there but um yeah you see this partial mercy being shown to ahab now when i think of mercy and forgiveness um what i want god's mercy to do is to wipe a, wipe away all the bad that i think will happen and forgive all the bad that i've done and i'm just everything's going to be okay and all the good that i want to happen god is going to make happen and so that's generally how i kind of view forgiveness i view it as a restoration or complete restoration but in the story of ahab what we see is this partial forgiveness and I think that God gives partial mercy because Ahab gives partial repentance. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the story, Ahab doesn't take the land that he has stolen and return it back to Naboth's family. Like, there's no record of that. There's no record of Ahab then, after mourning, uh, becoming this good, righteous king and turning away from his evil ways. Um, You kind of, as you continue reading the story of Ahab, uh, you see him. Um Continuing on in his in in his he 's just not a wise person, and that that doesn 't stop and so because his repentance is partial god 's mercy is also partial and so what I want to do here is just kind of highlight three lessons that I learned from the life of Ahab uh, three lessons that really have to do with mercy the first one. Uh, the first lesson is that God looks for any excuse to give mercy. Uh, when I look at the life of Ahab and how he responds to judgment, I think, yeah, of course you're sorry because you're going to get punished and you're going to lose everything that you hold dear. So, of course you're going to be sorry. But why is that good enough? And I picture God in heaven looking at Ahab thinking, ah, oh, He feels sorrow. So let me try and make things a little bit easier. And it's almost as if God is trying to communicate to Ahab. He's trying to show Ahab who he is. Like He's trying to draw Ahab to himself. And unfortunately, this never really happens fully. But yeah, in this story, it shows that God is just looking for any excuse to be kind. The second lesson that I take from this story is that uh, when God does give mercy... Uh, God's mercy is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, in other words, um, there are degrees of mercy, and God is appropriately fair um, with the mercy that he gives. The third observation or the third lesson that I take away from this story is a bit of a challenging idea to wrestle with. Um, but when I look at the story, it highlights that The injustice of man makes it difficult to understand the mercy of God. The injustice of humanity makes it difficult to understand the mercy of God. And and what I mean by that is that God seems to show Ahab more mercy than Naboth. Like, why doesn't God stop Ahab from doing wrong? Why doesn't he stop Jezebel from doing wrong? Uh, why does God allow Naboth to be murdered? In this story, God speaks to Elijah to go and rebuke Ahab, but why doesn't he speak to Elijah a bit sooner to go stop the injustice from happening? It, it seems like God is more willing to give Ahab mercy than he is willing to stop injustice. And and I guess that idea doesn't sit well with me. Um, when I read the story, I want God to prevent the wrong from happening. When I look at my own life, there are moments where I've been wronged and there are times where I kind of ask myself the question, man, God, why did you let that happen? Especially when, when I feel like I'm wronged by someone who is religious or when I feel like I'm wronged by, um, someone who is, uh, devoted, uh, devoted to the church. And I kind of think to myself, you know, we're in a church system here and, and, it seems like it seems like it's easier to get away with things sometimes, and so it, it, it's difficult to kind of process that, um, and I guess for other people who look around in the world and they say, "You know there are so many evil people who are in positions of power, why are they allowed to continue on in their positions? Why does wrong um, um, persist now non- my normal response. Um, would be to argue from the free will argument. And basically the free will argument states that God is love and love cannot be forced. So the moment you stop people from being able to make mistakes um, is the moment that you take away free will. And that's inconsistent with who God is. If utopia is created but nobody is allowed to make a mistake, is it really utopia or is it prison? like so one cannot have freedom and uh force perfection at the same time they, they are inconsistent but today i want to take a slightly different approach in in matthew chapter 13 there's a parable uh entitled the parable of wheat and tares and i'll just narrate the story uh to you for the sake of time um, in this story Jesus tells about how the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows good seed in his field. And while everyone is sleeping, an enemy comes and uh, sows weeds or tares. <clears throat> and so uh, as the uh, harvest cycle continues on and the farmer's laborers go and they water the field, the field begins growing and what the laborers notice is that along with the weeds, there are, uh, along with the wheat, there are weeds. And so this, this question of where did the weeds come from? And as they go back to the farmer and ask him the question, the farmer says, an enemy has done this. Um, and so the, 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 the workers of the field say, shall we go and pluck up the weeds? And the farmer says, don't, because if you pluck up the weeds, you might pluck up the wheat as well. Let them both grow. And when it's time for harvest, we'll harvest everything Separate them. The weeds will burn, and the wheat will bring into my barn. And so Jesus tells this parable and he continues on in his ministry. Uh, and as he is walking along in this journey, his disciples come to him and they ask him, Hey, can you can you explain the meaning of the parable of the wheat and tares to us? And so in Matthew chapter 13, verses thirty-six to forty, uh thirty-six to thirty-nine. And I'll continue to read to verse 43 as well. Jesus explains the meaning of the parable. He answers, or he says, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. So in the story, God describes or Jesus describes that there's kind of this battle or this conflict between good and evil, uh, between Jesus and Satan. And in this cosmic battle, the enemy is difficult to identify. The wheat and the tares, they look so closely alike. And because Evil is difficult to identify. God allows it to persist. Um, I don't know if you've looked at uh, a picture of a fully grown wheat and a fully grown weed. And, um, you know, when I looked at this picture, to be honest, I didn't know which was which. And um, for those of you who may be in the same boat as me, uh, the one on the left is wheat. The one on the right is a weed. And notice they look very, very similar. And so Jesus' approach to this or God's approach to this this challenge is he's saying in order to be able to tell the difference between good and evil, evil needs to develop in order to be recognized. In other words, some things we don't know are wrong until the final result of what wrong is. That sentence didn't quite flow out the way that it was in my mind, but I think you know what I'm talking about. And so here, God's solution then is to wait till a specific time before uh, evil is taken out, before justice is served. Uh, another challenge is that um, even though wheat and tares are two separate things uh, when it comes to agriculture, in real life, people are not wheat or tares. In other words, the decisions that we make are not so final. Evil people do good things and good people do evil things. And in this cosmic conflict, God's primary consideration is humanity. And he wants, uh, he is not so quick to judge. And so when you look at the story of Naboth, or when you look at the world and you see, uh, people who persist to do bad, you see God prioritizing mercy over injustice uh, excuse me yes prioritizing mercy over justice in hopes that people will change and i guess from our perspective it's a challenging pill to swallow because we don't want bad things to happen we don't want people to persist in their wrong and and so when we see wrongdoing continuing on it it, it frustrates us because god has the power to stop it From the perspective of God, God wants sin to cease. God wants humanity to be saved, and so he waits. He prefers giving patience and mercy over enacting justice. There are times in the Bible where God does stop evil from happening. There are times in life where God stops evil from happening. There are times in Scripture and in life where God practices justice and he enacts premature judgment as well. The majority of the time, you see God giving mercy. I think for us, when we look at the wrong in the world, it can be frustrating. But when you look at the parable of Matthew chapter 13, God wants to communicate, be patient, be kind, be merciful, and one day I will make the wrongs right. For me, I see God trying to get humanity. I see God trying to motivate humanity to practice mercy, to live in mercy, to receive the mercy of God, and then to give the mercy of God. Because it's in this that we find resilience. It's in this that we live out the gospel. It's in, in, in uh, I guess, adopting God's approach that we become agents of peace. Peace in the midst of adversity, in the midst of injustice. So today, as you are faced with your own mistakes, as you're faced with the mistakes of others and, and the impact that their mistakes have on your own life, it's my prayer and my hope that as you look at the story of Ahab, you can see a small picture of the heart of God to continue on, to move forward, to practice mercy to practice goodness, but also to hope that one day that justice will um, will happen. And in doing so, we will see the goodness of God. As you consider the life of Saul, David, and Ahab, as you reflect upon where, where you sit in your life in contrast to these three kings, um, my hope and prayer is that uh, these stories would draw you closer to the heart of God and that you would experience not just partial mercy, but complete mercy and restoration. May God bless you as you uh, consider his word and consider God's heart. Would you join me for prayer as we finish for today? Father God, as we consider the story of uh, David, Saul, and Ahab, we are faced with three different kings, three complete different personalities, and your relationship with these three uh, is quite different. But what we see consistently is are, are the nuances of your grace, the nuances of your mercy. And I pray that these stories would motivate us, Father, not to be um, locked into our mistakes, not to be held back by um, what we are not able to do. But, Father, I pray that we are drawn uh, by your goodness, by your forgiveness, and may it may it motivate us uh, to try more, to experience you, to exp- to to, to uh, give you more space to work in our lives. So we pray these things in your name, Amen.